Well, it is coming down here in New York, I can tell you that. We've been hit with the first major snowstorm of the season, and it is a big one. Uh, you'd actually have to call it a blizzard. We're expecting well over a foot of snow, uh, maybe a foot and a half by the time this thing is done. It's been coming down here in the Big Apple since uh, last night. There was some flurries in the afternoon yesterday, but it began coming down in earnest around 8.30, 9 o'clock last night. Continued throughout the night and really intensified this morning. Uh, and then his honor, Mayor Dom Blasio of New York City, issued an emergency travel restriction, meaning that all unnecessary travel is prohibited and only emergency travel or essential travel is allowed. You have to keep your car off the road, which means that if you're not an essential worker, uh, you're done. I mean, a bar owner, um, a nurse, you know, something along those lines. But uh, I've had enough of restrictions for the past year being told what I could and could not do, having been almost bankrupted in my businesses by virtue of doing this. So one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, so I said the hell of it in, in um, defiance of the mayor. I went up to my office in Westchester in my truck, and uh, nobody made an attempt to stop me. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another NPO podcast, National Preview Online. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so either in the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store. Simply search for the NPO podcast, and you're good to go. If you wish not to use either of those two native uh, podcasting aggregator apps, simply download the free Podbean app in either Play Store. Podbean is our hosting service. You can subscribe there. Regardless of how you choose to subscribe, please subscribe. You will get notified every time there's a new episode uploaded onto the server, uh, and you won't miss a thing that way. You can also leave comments and reviews, and we please ask that you do. Uh, because this is how the show gets found and it helps us to grow. We're also trying to increase our offerings by increasing our advertising budget. To that end, we have started a GoFundMe campaign for the show. You can find a link to that on our website, National Preview Online. Uh, That GoFundMe campaign is coming to an end. We may start another one. Uh, We're not looking for big donations, please. No $50 or $100 donations. Don't even think about it. All we're looking for is modest $5 and $10 donations so we can turn it into advertising uh, budget so we can uh, promote the show, make it grow. So, the snow aside, there are still a few developments that we thought you'd like to know about today, so I wanted to make an effort to do a show for you. Uh, One of the ones that's pretty ironic, Pennsylvania Secretary of State, Kathy Brookvar. Does that mean ring a bell to you? Kathy Bookvar? Yes, she was the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania who was at the heart of the fraudulent votes that were cast in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, And it's kind of contemptible that nothing's happened to her, that she wasn't forced to resign over that. I don't know why the Pennsylvania State Legislature didn't press that issue, but the Pennsylvania State Legislature was sufficiently convinced by the presentations of fraud that they sent their own state of electors to Washington, and they're not finished with what's going on over there. The legislature, you have not heard the last uh, from them. The only reason why this fraud was allowed to go forward was because you had a complicit Secretary of State in Kathy Bookvar and a Democrat complicit governor in Governor Tom Wolf, uh, one of the many governors 
who had uh, a high incidence of COVID deaths because of his mismanagement in that state, along with uh, Il Duce here in New York. But it looks like the bell has tolled for Ms. Bukvar, although not because of the election. It seems that she will have to resign over her department's reported failure to advertise a proposed constitutional amendment that would extend the statute of limitations for survivors of childhood sex abuse to file actions against their abusers. Reading on this article here from the Epic Times, Governor Tom Wolf said her resignation will go into effect on February 5th. The Secretary of State office is constitutionally required to advertise a proposed amendment, according to the governor's office. Wolf stressed that the re- resignation has nothing to do with Bookfar's oversight of the November 3rd election in Pennsylvania, in which she was at the center of a slew of failed lawsuits filed by former President Donald Trump and surrogates that claimed rampant fraud had occurred. Quote, this change at the Department of State has nothing to do with the administration of the 2020 election, which was fair and accurate. Well, actually, it wasn't. And these failed lawsuits, so to speak, excuse me, a little cough, um, were never actually adjudicated on the merits. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court found all types of ways to try and say they didn't have standing, things weren't done in a timely fashion. The United States uh, Supreme Court did the same thing. Um, and uh, perhaps if she wasn't so busy rigging the elections, uh, she might have had time to uh, fulfill the requirements of advertising this proposed constitutional amendment. Now, the articles aren't going into the details as to how much this proposed amendment would extend the statute of limitations in which people could file for sex abuse. I suppose it's a good thing, in one hand, to allow people a larger window to file sex abuse, uh, child sex abuse actions. On the other hand, uh, you can take too much of a good thing or take a good idea and take it too far. Just how long are we supposed to allow people to file these amendments? Um, There's a thing called faulty memory. There's a thing called people who who think they've been uh, abused. They've been convinced that they've been abused. You start letting people file things from 20 years hence that they may uh, have experienced or they may only have thought they've experienced, it's kind of bad. You're asking people to prosecute someone or sue someone over things that supposedly occurred 20 years ago when everyone's memory begins to degrade after a period of time. And I don't know how fair that is to the people you're accusing. Now, I'm not defending child abusers by any stretch of the imagination, but there has to be some type of limit as to how far back we can go to file these things uh, in the interest of fundamental fairness, because once you allow it for one category of civil actions or criminal actions, who knows how long it will be before these type of reasoning extend into other statute of limitations in other areas of the law. So just something to think about. But it's nice to see uh, Ms. Brookvar get her comeuppance. Now, in other news, big tech was also at the heart of the election. Notice how all these things are tying in. Big tech was at the heart of the election, uh, allowing themselves to be the final arbiters of what was truth, what wasn't truth, what was fit to print, what you should be allowed to hear, what you shouldn't be allowed to hear. Well, 
the Australians, who are big listeners to this show, so I thought I'd cover this piece for them. And let me give a big shout out to my fans down under. I've been very, very um, gratified by the response that I've gotten from Australia in terms of the number of downloads, according to my tracking software, that are coming from Australia. So apparently we're being listened to down there. I listen to Sky News Australia all the time myself because it's a very, very good news agency. It's got a conservative bent because the Australian people are smart people. They're a robust people, and they know that a strong America makes for a strong Australia because China is seeking to assert itself in the Pacific, and the Australian people will come under their thumb eventually uh, if they're allowed to do that. And so they have a very, very different attitude than some of the leftists here in the United States or in their, um, their distant cousins over there in the UK. Uh, but it seems that a Google is going to come under the thumb of the Australian government. Now, this is from the Epic Times, and I encourage my friends, my friends in Australia to subscribe to this uh, paper. It's a very good paper. It's trying to be dismissed by the left as a right, right-wing propaganda paper, but my answer to that is if the Epic Times is a right-wing propaganda paper, then what is the New York Times if not a left-wing propaganda paper? Australia's Prime Minister said Monday that Microsoft is confident it can fill the void if Google carries out its threat to remove its search engine from Australia. Now, why would Google do that? A Google executive told a Senate hearing last month that it would likely make its search engine unavailable in Australia if the government goes ahead with a draft law that would make tech giants pay for news content. Prime Minister Scott Morrison said that he has spoken to Microsoft chief Satya Nadella about its search engine Bing filling the space. I can tell you Microsoft's pretty confident that Australians would not be worse off, Morrison told the National Press Club of Australia. These are big technology companies, and what's important to Australia, I think, is that we set the rules that are right for our people. Having a news environment in this country that is one that is sustainable and is supported commercially, then this is vital to how democracies function. Now, Bing is the second most popular search engine in Australia, as it is in many places here in the United States. But people don't realize just how big a market share Google has. Even though Bing, which is Microsoft, a big company, is second in popularity of search engines in Australia, it has only about 3.6% of the market share. Google has 95%. Uh, A Microsoft statement confirmed that the online meeting between the Prime Minister and Uh, the head of Microsoft, has taken place. We recognize the importance of a vibrant media. Now, what's going on here is, uh, according to this, with respect to the current controversy of a potential code of conduct governing Google and Facebook, Microsoft is not directly involved. There's a mandatory code of conduct that's being proposed by the government, and it aims to make Google and Facebook pay Australian media companies fairly for using new contents that the tech giants siphon from news sites. And that's that's true. In a, in a manner of speaking, there being news aggregator sites and reporting news, and specifically, they're being very selective in the news that they decide to report. 
Uh, and if someone else posts something that they disagree with, if they don't um, immediately suppress it, they post like a little caveat next to it. Uh, like whenever somebody posted something about the election, they would post something, oh, the election's been finalized, uh, they're trying to dismiss it as idle chatter. Now, when I do these podcasts, naturally, I draw from other news sources, but I don't draw from them for the purpose of reporting news. I draw on it for the purpose of offering my take on what the, what the public opinion should be of these things. I offer opinion and analysis on this show. I'm not a news service per se. That's different than what Google um, and Facebook are doing. They're offering opinion, but they're trying to pass it off as news because they're just using selective news. Very different. Um, so they want to make them make them pay. Now, there are currently no plans to make the smaller search engines pay, but we never know how that could change. Uh, it goes on to say that Google's faced pressure from authorities elsewhere to pay for news. Last month, it signed a deal with a group of French publishers, paving the way for the company to make digital copyright payments. Under the agreement, Google will negotiate individual licensing deals with newspapers with payments based on factors such as the amount published daily and monthly Internet site traffic. So it looks like <clears throat> regulation uh, by hook or crook is going to catch up with the tech giants of Facebook and uh, Google. And I think it's high time that the American government does the same. Well, how much they're going to do now that they're under uh, the Biden Democratic rule, we don't know uh, because they were instrumental in perpetrating this fraud on the American people, and I'm sure they're expecting to get paid back for that. But there are a lot of Republican lawmakers who are making a big stink about it, and you may very well see something happen to control them anyway because they're getting a little too powerful. And I'm sure that the people in Democratic seats of power are probably thinking, well, what if they ever get pissed off at us, uh, how quickly they could turn. We don't want to be under the thumb. We have antitrust legislation in this country for a reason. Let's see what happens. Now, remember, even if they break up, as was discussed on the, the show I listened to on Sky News yesterday, even if they break up tech giants like Google and Facebook, you're not going to eliminate the riches of people like Mark Zuckerberg and the Eric Schmitz of the world because they're still the primary stockholders. I often tell the story that the government, in its effort to destroy John Rockefeller, actually made him this company's first billionaire. Standard Oil came under the thumb of the government under the antitrust laws, the Sherman Act. Uh, they didn't go after Carnegie for the monopoly of steel and other people. They, they picked on John Rockefeller and Standard Oil. They broke up Standard Oil into about 30 companies. The one thing nobody anticipated was that those 30 separate companies in aggregate were worth more than Standard Oil had been as one company. So overnight, John Rockefeller became a billionaire, and nothing about breaking up those companies um, caused him to lose wealth. He still had influence. He was the primary stockholder in all of those companies. Now, in terms of this information, though, uh, see, the oil companies were selling one product, oil and gasoline and so forth. Uh, if they're broken up and they're not, you know, gigantic players, they're broken up into smaller uh, companies, then perhaps they won't have the same amount of clout they will in terms of dissemination of information. So this is very interesting, and I think it's a road that we need to go down, definitely. But let me get to a couple of other things that I want to get to. The big one I wanted to get to today was COVID. 
And because some people have criticized me, saying I rely on alternative sources and things like that. So let's take something from one of your sources, one of the sources that you love. Uh, the New York Times. Let's see if I can find it. The New York Times, right here. Headline, Coronavirus in the U.S., the latest map and case count. And I'm going to show you just how you're being played, folks. You need to know this. As of Monday, that's today, the total number of reported cases of coronavirus in the United States since this pandemic first reached our shores is 26.2 million people. Okay? 26.2 million people. These 26.2 million cases have resulted in 441,296 deaths. So, before we go on to the next thing, let me just do a little mathematics for you. If you take out your calculator and you divide 441,296 by 26,200,000 deaths, you get an answer of 0.0168. So round it up, 0.017. Now what is that? That translates into a 1.7% death rate. Hardly something that justifies wrecking an economy the way it has. However, that number is not accurate. Even that 1.7% mortality rate vastly, dramatically overrepresents the true mortality rate of the COVID-19 virus. Why? Well, because the 26 million case number is inaccurate. I've told you this before. They're arriving at the 26.2 million cases because those are the number of cases that have been confirmed by positive test results, people who have been tested for the virus and have tested positive. But as we know, and we knew early on, 97% of the people who get the coronavirus are asymptomatic, meaning they have no symptoms. They simply don't feel sick. Or if they do have symptoms, these symptoms are so mild that they don't give it a second thought. Because of that, they don't get tested. 97%. 97 percent. So in a way, this 26 million represents potentially only a fraction of the number of people who have actually had the case. But let's assume that it's not just 3 percent of the people have actually had it. A conservative estimate using mathematical formulas would say that if 26 million people have tested positive the actual number of people who are positive, who actually have had the the virus, given the high percentage of asymptomatic cases, could conservatively be estimated at 10 times this number. That's 260 million. But let's not even go that far. Let's say that there was only five times that many. We got about 130 million people. 441,000. 296 deaths. If it's only 1.7% of 26 million, what do you think it is of 130 million? It's a fraction of 1%. We're going through all kinds of grief, ladies and gentlemen, for something that just isn't that 
lethal. And of these 441,000 deaths, 94% are people who have 2.6 comorbidities on average. In other words, they're people who are already in compromised states of health. People in compromised states of health are always more vulnerable to things that attack the respiratory system. Many of the victims of the annual flu are people who are in the respiratory system or compromised by the respiratory system. So we're really, really doing a lot here for very, very little. Now, I mention this because last week there was an article that stated that Merck Sharpen Dome, it's a pharmaceutical company. In the United States, they just call it Merck. But years ago, it used to be called Merck Sharpen Dome and it was because it was a result of a merger. And they still use that name uh, in other markets. Merck Sharpen Dome is a very big pharmaceutical company on the order of Pfizer and Eli Lilly. Uh, and they were in the process of developing a coronavirus vaccines, a couple of vaccines. They have now abandoned their vaccine program. And the reason why, <clears throat> excuse me, is because they said they were disappointed with the immune response, that it was far less than the immune response that they were um, able to see was demonstrated in people who actually contracted the virus and recovered from it. Now, Pfizer and Moderna, their vaccines have produced uh, immune responses that are, are favorable and more on a par with people who have recovered from the virus. Um, but the problem is, now that they have these new strains coming in, there's all types of concern as to whether or not the vaccines developed for the original COVID-19 strain are going to be equally efficacious against um, these other strains. So Merck, seeing that the two vaccines were already out there, have taken a different turn. They, instead of developing vaccines, are focusing on developing therapeutics. Now, what does that mean? They're developing drugs that lessen the symptoms and quicken the recovery time of people who actually get the disease. They think a quicker way of getting population's immunity up as soon as somebody's diagnosed it, you give them this, this drug, it mitigates his uh, symptoms much in the same way President Trump, who was classic case, 74 years old, he would likely be somebody that could be potentially at risk. He was given therapeutics. The man was out of the hospital in three days, even though he was 74 years of age and he looks great. So you could have the same thing going on for you. And quite frankly, I prefer that. I'm never one to take vaccines. Now, I would take a vaccine if you told me that I was vaccinating myself against a disease that was highly communicable, that if I contracted it, had a 50% or even a 25% chance of me dying. But I'm not going to be putting things in my body. I don't even get a flu shot every year uh, unless I feel I have to. I would rather take something when I have to. So if they can develop therapeutics, I think that's the way to go. Uh, the actual cases spiked in January, but they're saying they think that's I'm glad, I can't believe that nobody blamed that on President Trump, but they're admitting that's because of all the uh, holiday gatherings over Christmas and New Year's and the associated two-week incubation period or what have you, uh, and that's why they, they think there was a spike. Supposedly it's going down. So this is what you have going on with the coronavirus, and this is not an article. These are not stats that were provided to me by the Epic Times. This was provided by the New York Times. So don't say I'm just picking and choosing certain sources, okay? This is from your, your favorite paper of record, The Gray Lady, The New York Times, soon to be 
I think, defunct. But there's one other little article I wanted to cover. Um, Very interesting article. And this is from the Washington Times. And it's about Trump. The title of the article, written by Jennifer Harper, this came out yesterday, is called Trump Quietly, quote, Getting Stronger. I, I thought most of you would like to hear this, especially my friends down under. So let me read this to you. The countdown is on for the Senate impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, set to make its debut, media ready, in one week. Opening arguments are expected to start on February 8th. News organizations, however, are already previewing the event with gusto. When the big day dawns, the trial likely will generate much special coverage. A multitude of analysts and experts, fancy graphics, historical references, timelines, editorials, and endless speculation, the usual treatment, in other words. Mr. Trump, in the meantime, is staying out of the limelight at the moment, which could very well be a beneficial thing as the press whips itself up into a standard media frenzy. This is a case of less is more, some say. An emerging dynamic is at work, far from the nation's capital, according to Tara Palmieri. Now, Tara Palmieri covers politics for Politico. You all know of that site, politico.com. And she apparently has just returned from a visit to Wyoming. Now, why is Wyoming uh, significant? Because Wyoming is the state where Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney are from. And Liz Cheney is the current congressional representative in Wyoming. She went there specifically to look in on a rally that took place this past Thursday in Cheyenne that was organized by Congressman Matt Getz from Florida. Now, Matt Getz, as everyone knows, is a very strong proponent of President Trump. Now, he was there intent on drawing attention to Representative Liz Cheney. Ms. Palmieri had a few thoughts, it says, about the local population sentiment towards Trump. Quote, I'm really happy I went out there and saw it. I think there is a huge disconnect right now between Washington and the rest of the country. Thanks for the hint. And you know, Trump people don't want to hear anything against Trump. Actually, the more he stays out of the media, the more he becomes this martyr, this looming figure over the GOP, she told MSNBC. A lot of people said they aren't really Republicans, that they're there for Trump. That's it. And it's just that I think he's actually getting stronger, that the base is getting stronger. This is what Mrs. Palmieri told MSNBC. Now, Tristan Justice is a correspondent for The Federalist. Now, he also went to Wyoming, and he wanted to see this event that Getz had put together. And apparently, Mr. Getz was not uh, mincing any words about Liz Cheney. According to Trust and Justice, he branded Liz Cheney as emblematic of the old way of doing things. He also identified things that the party needs to be successful in the future. And the reaction, he said, was the crowd loved it. Every single person I spoke to complained about Liz Cheney, and not just because of her impeachment vote. A lot of them said that, like, I guess the impeachment had been the last straw. They were kind of fed up with her to begin with. They really attacked her for being... Um, a symbol of the past, and that Liz Cheney is in trouble in her own state, that Trumpism has gripped the party. I don't think there's a lot of space for the Republican Party to go back 
to the old way of doing things. So what I've been saying all along, what other people have been saying all along, is that, look, Trump is not going away. I don't know what you think. You think because you get rid of Trump that it's going to go away? Trump is not going away. I said these people in Washington, the the Chuck Schumers, Chuck the Schmuck, Nancy Pelosi, uh, the Dick Durbins, uh, all these people in the Democratic Party, the squad, AOC, they still don't get it. They still don't understand it. Trump did not start this movement. This movement began because of a growing dissatisfaction on the part of the public with Washington and the fact that they felt that Washington has become increasingly unresponsive to the needs of the public. All great empires have experienced this. Rome fell because of this, because the people in the Roman Senate, the politicians, the elites of society became too concerned with their own continued prosperity and became unresponsive to the masses. And that is what is becoming here. I don't worry about millionaires and billionaires like Trump getting into office because their man was rich before he got there. What I do worry about are people that were poor serve in public office for 175000 a year and come out as multimillionaires. That concerns me. How does that happen? How does Nancy Pelosi afford what she affords? How does Joe Biden have four lakefront mansions, having never had a job outside the public sector in his life? It boggles the mind, unless you accept the obvious. They're corrupt. They're thieves. They're not going to get rid of Trump, because I said the movement existed before he took over. He just became the head of the movement. He recognized as Paul Ryan had said in the aftermath of the election in 2016, that Trump heard the voice in the wilderness. Trump had his finger on the pulse of America's dissatisfaction, and he knew that this group, this movement, this sentiment was out there, and he capitalized on it. And he made good on what he said. He made his energy independent. Everything Trump said he was going to do, he did, which is very unusual for a politician. He said he was going to do something. He did it. He rebuilt the military. He secured the border. He lowered unemployment to record levels. He employed more women, minorities, Hispanics, blacks, you name it, than any president in the history of the United States, or at least in the history since they've been measuring those unemployment levels. Everything he said he was going to do, he did. It was a positive benefit. And within a week, this feeble-minded idiot that they put in there by, by fraud and deception and and artifice is destroying everything. Gasoline is already up 30 cents a gallon. Wait till you see when it's $5 a gallon and $10 a gallon. I hope all you people that voted for him don't drive and don't seem to care what the cost of power is because you're going to get it. And you heard my show the other day, you can't do it with electric vehicles. We've got 280 million vehicles in this country. You suddenly change them all to electric. There's no way to charge them all. We don't have the grid capacity. We don't have the power plants. And nobody wants to build new power plants anyway because they make power by gas and coal. Oh, but we'll build them by solar and wind. Not happening. They're not efficient enough. The science isn't there yet. There isn't enough wind and solar power available to supply those cars. That's why California is having so many brownouts because they tried to vest heavily in wind and solar. And on heavy demand days, they just can't cut it. And it's going to get worse. It'll get a lot worse before it gets better. But I have a feeling 
that certain things will come to light soon about this fraud. They can't suppress it forever. And even though Joe Biden has already been sworn in, the only way to get him out is to impeach him. If it is demonstrated that fraud was the reason why he was elected, he will be viewed by the American public as an illegitimate president. The same thing they tried to do to Donald Trump for four years, portray him as illegitimate. But in Biden's case, it will stick. And once the man loses the confidence of the public, he can't govern. There won't be the appetite for his executive orders. He won't be able to get away with writing them. The house will come crashing down. And before you know it, the midterm elections of 2022 will be upon us. And you will see that red wave continue. Republicans will take back the House and may even take back the Senate. And then Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, if she's in office by then, because I don't think Biden can make it, will find themselves stymied, only without the drive and the perseverance that President Trump had, who was able to accomplish things in the face of overwhelming adversity, they will fold like cheap cameras because they just don't have what he has. My Jewish wife would call it chutzpah. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.